millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi there, my name is Zach Twomley. You're listening to When Diplomacy Fails. And maybe you're thinking right now, for crying out loud, how many episodes a week are you going to release? And I would ask myself the same question. What exactly is life if you're not recording and then editing and then researching and then lecturing and then doing the delegation game? I don't know, maybe I fit a little bit of Total War in there somewhere, but otherwise, I am your humble host and podcaster, Zach Twomley. And I'm coming to you, not at all live, but pre-recorded from an undisclosed location. That being my apartment and the back room and with all the curtains pulled because... I can't afford a studio, but what I can afford is to spend an awful lot of time with you guys every single week. And I really love it. I really do love doing this. And if you love it too, then make sure you tell people because that makes me extra super happy. 
It is a great time to be a listener of this podcast because we've never been so active. We're diving so deep into the Versailles Anniversary Project, and it's great to see you guys react and respond to what we're doing here. I really love it. I really do love to see it. Events that happened a century ago, who knew they could be so fascinating, so relevant to what's going on today, and so incredibly more to them than what's normally said in a textbook. That being, the Paris Peace Conference happened, it made the Treaty of Versailles, then World War II. Well, guess what textbook, we're able to squeeze all these hours out of it, so something obviously went down. As we go along at this project, you're going to see more and more primary sources being used. The Foreign Relations of the United States papers are absolutely wonderful and they're all available online for free so thanks to the US government for doing that because it means that I can read the minutes of all of these meetings whether it's the Supreme War Council meeting, the Supreme Council meeting, the Council of Four, everything pretty much that happens and not just up to the point that the Treaty of Versailles was signed either all the way along. Again that stuff is free but a lot of the stuff I access is not free I have to pay for it and that's where your guys' support comes in so handy. If you would like to support this podcast on Patreon and make sure that history thrives from as little as $1 a month, you can do that and get some pretty sweet stuff in return. If you do support for $1, if you become a history fan, as it's called, you can get the 10-part series, Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, delivered right to your door. Except it won't be your door because it's even more convenient than that. It's right to your device, whatever device that is that you're using. And it's wonderful. I really enjoyed making that series, and I still remember doing it nearly two years ago. If you'd like to give yourself an executive upgrade, then by all means do that. Go for the $2, where you'll get all these Versailles episodes absolutely free every single week. And you'll also get them without ads, because you get them free anyway. I don't know why I said it like that. But you do get them for free, and I love bringing them to you for free. So that's why Patreon is great if you want to get a little bit extra. Subscription, programs, all that kind of stuff. So for an hour of extra content every month... Go for the $5. Become a history friend. A qualified, certified history friend. Ooh, very interesting. Yes, indeed. Almost as interesting as the delegation game itself. For $6 a month, you can get yourself a passport to that crazy thing going down now. I suppose you could say it's going down in podcast land, but it's also super active on the different Facebook chats. We set up a Discord if Facebook is not your thing. And we also have the Facebook group, which is just going nuts at the moment with all these different things that are happening I thought I was nerdy, but let me say, I never realized how much people would really get into this, because they really, really have. And again, have I said how much fun I'm having with it? I'm really having a huge amount of fun with that. So if you haven't listened yet, check out one of the episodes that come out, well, it used to be every Friday, but then I made it Saturday, because I need some sanity in my life. So yes, check out the new episodes of the Delegation Game coming out every single Saturday now. I think we'll be releasing the fourth episode of that just by the time you're listening to this, so go and check that out. It's something I really enjoy doing, and even if you're not all that interested in playing, maybe listening is your thing. You want to hear some alternative history unfold? You want to hear how people mold and shape and wreck this alternative version of history? The Delegation Game is for you. So go on over and listen, but if you want to shape it yourself personally and feature in these episodes, then Pay that $6 a month, and I'll be happy to welcome you to Paris. Alrighty, guys, a little bit of a smaller episode, I suppose, this time than what you may have been expecting. But don't worry, there's plenty more to come. Oh, good grief. I'm going to need a new voice by the end of this project, but it's all good. Although it wasn't all good for those that were taking part a century ago. So without any further ado, let's do further.
3,000 miles from home, an American army is fighting for you. To the end, that the high ideals for which America stands may endure upon the earth. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 34. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 34 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Last time, even though we covered roughly a day's discussions in the Supreme War Council, specifically the 7th of February 1919, we also traced much of the build-up to the League of Nations, and we assessed Woodrow Wilson's character from several points of view. We will perhaps never reach a consensus on that man or on his actions, but that won't stop us continuing with this narrative. Today we're going to continue tracing the deliberations of the Council of Ten as they prepared for the exit of two leaders, David Lloyd George to Britain and Woodrow Wilson to the United States. David Lloyd George seemed to have left around the 8th of February, so he doesn't really take part in this episode all that much, but just so you know, he was here at one point, and now he's not, and there you go. We'll check in with him later on. Our podcast microscope will hone in on the second week of February, specifically the 8th, 9th and 10th of that month, as compromises were hammered out in the Council of Ten, and the subject of German disobedience, oh those darn Germans, began to provoke disagreement and division among the Allied leaders at the worst possible time. Without any further ado then, let's get into this as I take you all to the latest Supreme War Council meeting on the morning of the 8th of February, 1919. Two days after it had first convened, the Allies were finally ready to turn, at the very least, a portion of their attentions towards the National Assembly which the Germans had set up in Weimar. There were mixed feelings about even listening to what this German Assembly had to say. One of its complaints, which the Allies had received, had to do with a mundane but critically important issue, the delivery of mail and the ridiculously long time it seemed to be taking. On this day, on the 8th of February, Wilson seemed to be in a generous mood, as well as a sensible one. The previous day's meeting, if you'll recall, was hampered by the fundamental disagreements between the British and Americans on the one hand, and the French and Italians on the other, 
over the question of disarming Germany and demanding the demobilization of her soldiers, as well as how to guarantee German weakness while the Allies hammered out the final peace deal. Woodrow Wilson and David Lloyd George wanted to approach the question delicately and not give the Germans any reason to feel discontented or vengeful, while Georges Clemenceau and Vittorio Orlando believed that, since they were the losing side, the Germans would have to obey whether they liked it or not, and to approach the situation delicately was tantamount to a declaration of Allied weakness. Wilson made the point that I do not wish to grant the Germans any freedom which it was not safe to give them, but it was clearly desirable to assist the Germans in the formation of some authority with which the Allies could deal. It was therefore important to assist the Weimar Assembly. It is clearly undesirable that their letters should take as long as three weeks and their telegrams as long as seven days for delivery. Assent was granted to this appeal, and it seemed that the Allies had taken the first, perhaps most important step, towards legitimising the Weimar Republic's regime, headed by Friedrich Ebert. Even the smallest concession or bit of aid on this mail issue would be immensely beneficial for Ebert because it would show that the Allies wanted to help and that they saw his regime as legitimate. If either Wilson or Ebert believed that this boded well for the rest of the meeting, though, then Ebert was lucky he was not present, because he may have burst a blood vessel if he had been. The old chestnut of the renewal of the armistice terms once again did the rounds, as did the discussion of the repatriation of German prisoners. The French upheld the position that the Allies should demand, with one voice, the handover of thousands of guns and pieces of military equipment, on a scale far larger than that which had originally been laid down. This was justified on the basis that Germany's factories were still on a war footing, and that Germany had been producing new arms while the Allies had been assembled at Paris. If given the chance, Clemenceau, Foch and others insisted, Germany would turn these new items against the Allies. Wilson, on the contrary, believed that since the world was watching, it was imperative that the Allies not make such severe demands, and that they tread carefully. According to the minutes of the Supreme War Council meeting, the President expressed the point that It is very important that the Allies should make a good impression on the world. These continual aggravations of the armistice put the Allies to a great moral advantage. As far as the interests of safety were concerned, I would be content myself to leave the Germans in possession of what they had. The Germans were beaten and they knew it. Their spirit was broken and they would not renew the struggle. Rather than demand repeatedly that the Germans hand over their weapons, Wilson made an alternative suggestion. The Allies should demand that the Germans furnish the Allies with accurate information about the weapons they had at their disposal. This would solve the mystery which the French High Command had struggled with regarding Germany's military capabilities. Allied advisers could be sent to the relevant factories to ensure that Germany was telling the truth, and only if Germany's military equipment was found to exceed the demands of the armistice terms would action be taken. Clemenceau noted that the current sporadic hostilities between the Germans and Poles granted the Allies a justifiable chance to demand this information, and Wilson agreed with this. Clemenceau then asked Wilson on the spot to draft a text which would combine his views with the suggestion just made regarding Poland. Not for the first time, and it's easy to forget this, but Wilson displayed incredible skill in making such a resolution up on the fly, a skill which Robert Lansing, not his biggest fan after all, noticed more than once, and which he wished the President had made greater use of during the tenure of the Peace Conference. Writing his memoirs on this topic, Lansing noted, 
Occasionally, Mr Clemenceau, after a discussion in which the President had expressed definite views, would ask the latter to draft a resolution embodying his opinion. Mr Wilson would at once take a pencil and, without hesitation and without erasers, write out in his small, plain hand a resolution couched with exceptional brevity and unambiguous terms. In a proposed measure of this sort, the exactness of his thought and his command of language were clearly exhibited. Possessing this ability, far surpassing that of any other person attending the Council of Ten, it is all the more deplorable that he did not use it constantly. In this case, on the 8th of February, 1919, the resolution, which the President had quickly drawn up with his little pencil, read, It is agreed that an immediate demand shall be made of the Germans that they supply us with all the information now in their hands as to the number of machine guns, of field guns, of heavy guns, of airplane motors, and of naval aircraft now in their depots and factories, that they be informed that their refusal to desist from hostilities in Poland notwithstanding the fact that the Polish authorities have agreed to desist from the use of force against the Germans in Poland, makes this demand for information immediately imperative with a view to determining the terms, which shall be exacted when the time comes for the renewal of the armistice. The discussion then turned to other matters, including the full pacification and demobilization of Germany's fleet. In a landmark move, and one which will become very important later on, the proposal for the establishment of a Supreme Economic Council was presented unapproved. This Supreme Economic Council would override all other bodies which had been set up by the Allies to look into economic questions arising out of the war. It would take the same shape as the Supreme Council, so it was a Supreme Economic Council, whereas the Allies were mostly sitting on the Supreme Normal Council. But the concerned governments could nominate up to five delegates of their own to sit on the Supreme Economic Council, while they themselves sat on the normal Supreme Council. It's almost as though they loved setting all these things up. The very broad topics of food, finance, blockade, shipping, raw materials, etc. were to be up for discussion on this Supreme Economic Council, and civilian representatives, particularly experts in these particular fields, were to be sought out and placed on this council. With the acceptance of this motion, the Supreme War Council dispersed for the day, skipping out on meeting on Sunday and agreeing to meet again on Monday the 10th of February. On the evening of the 9th of February, we're drawn to an entry in Edward House's diary. House was of course exceedingly busy at this point, a fact which he never ceased to reiterate in his diary, especially when he could allude to the numerous VIPs that darkened his doorway and made his life so busy. One of these was Arthur Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary, and the man holding the fort of the British delegation since Lloyd George had left to fix the crisis in industrial relations back home and also just cheer everyone up a bit. House's conclusions on the situation are interesting, because if you thought that either man would be disturbed by the sudden exit of their superior, you may be surprised to learn that both were in fact looking forward to the moment when they would be able to wield greater control over the proceedings. House wrote on the 9th of February that Mr Balfour was an interesting caller. He agrees with me that the peace conference is wasting time. These hearings upon boundary questions are utterly futile. The way I think they should have been conducted was to have gotten our experts together and after they had delineated the boundaries, called in the interested parties and asked them to give their reasons why these boundaries should not be accepted. Balfour and I determined that when the President... Lloyd George and Orlando left on their visits to their different capitals, 
we would try to get a program started which would include only articles necessary for a preliminary peace with Germany, and that we would work on these until they were finished. Yet, while House's entry demonstrates his ambition and optimism, it also shows his vision for how the conference would pan out, and it shows that this vision was flawed. House was under the impression, as was Balfour, so it seems, that the leaders would return home or would travel to the different capitals for the sake of PR once the major points of the treaty were hammered out, and that it would then be up to them to take over. This, of course, is not what happened. For better or for worse, House and Balfour would remain second to Wilson and Lloyd George, respectively, since, following the short intermission as those two leaders returned home, everyone would stick around until the end. The mood was tense in the afternoon meeting of the Supreme War Council on the 10th of February. The topic, as before, was the renewal of the armistice with Germany, which was due to expire on the 17th of this month, only a week away. If a solution was not reached as to the delineation of new terms or conditions, then the war would technically be resumed, and this was of course unacceptable. As the meeting opened, both Balfour and Clemenceau expressed the points that, in the case of their naval capabilities, the Germans had not complied with the armistice terms, and that in the economic clauses, the Germans had not complied sufficiently either. The question was how to compel the Germans to fall in line without causing some kind of rupture or alienating world opinion. It was suggested that the question be deferred to several different bodies, but a practical solution did not seem forthcoming. Again, the Allies knew that if they couldn't reach a consensus, then the war would be resumed, and with less than a week before its expiration, time was absolutely of the essence. Woodrow Wilson commented on the sheer gravity of the moment, saying that, The Allies were about to make a very serious decision because they found themselves confronted by a momentous situation which might force them to renew the war, since a refusal to renew the armistice meant a renewal of the war. The work done would have to be done over again, and I wonder what would be the reaction in the minds of the people of the world. Our choice on Wednesday, the deadline for reaching a consensus about how to compel Germany to agree to their terms, would be very serious and solemn. No nation of the world would forgive us if hostilities were renewed for any but the most imperative reasons. It could not be foreseen what might be brought upon us by an insufficiently considered action. I could not help feeling that, if on Wednesday we are not perfectly clear as to the steps we are going to take, it would be better to renew the armistice on its present terms for a very short period, say one or two weeks, until we could reach a well-considered action. If the Allies couldn't even agree on how to compel Germany to agree to the armistice terms, then how on earth could they craft a final, lasting peace treaty? This question was surely at the forefront of Allied minds, but no agreement could apparently here be found. Marshal Foch at least agreed that in the act of telling the Germans the armistice would be renewed for a short period, the Germans would be given a stern warning and could engage in some profitable thinking, as he put it, of their own. But Balfour didn't quite agree with this, and he noted that the Germans should be simply told that they were not upholding the armistice terms, with the Allied blockade being used as leverage. French Foreign Minister Stephen Pichon expressed his view that any hesitation on the Allied side would be taken as a sign of weakness by the Germans, who would push the limits of Allied patience as much as they could. Eventually, it was agreed that yet another committee would be established to debate the possibilities, and it would present its findings in 36 hours on Wednesday morning the 12th of February. Wilson suggested that each of the big four nominate two delegates 
and this was done and the committee for this purpose was formed. With a major point of disagreement postponed and referred to a committee, by now a favourite tactic, the Allies got around to other issues. The question of how to treat purported war criminals in Allied custody was discussed. A French representative read a German pamphlet from 1916 which detailed plans to disassemble the industrial capacity of the occupied countries, and the supply of raw materials to Germany was rejected until Germany complied with previous armistice terms. Clemenceau proposed the two significant issues, the discussion of Belgian territorial claims and the discussion of how many soldiers were needed for occupational duties in former Turkish lands, be delayed until tomorrow, and at hearing this, I'm sure everyone breathed a sigh of relief. After it was accepted, the meeting adjourned. Where once it had seemed that this final Monday meeting before Wilson returned home would be full of important decisions, now it was clear that all which had really been accomplished on the 10th of February was that several cans had been kicked down the road. All that the Allies could agree on was that it was difficult to compel German compliance with their aims, and that a resumption of the war would be disastrous. The creation of yet another committee to deal with the problem hinted that a solution might be available, but all were aware that matters were being left until very close to the last minute. If a solution regarding a new armistice terms and the question of how to compel German obedience was not reached on Wednesday the 12th of February, then the armistice could very well expire just as Wilson returned home to America. If that occurred, then several plans would change. The Allies would have to mobilise their forces and a concerted plan of attack would have to be written. Lloyd George would certainly have to return to Paris and alliances would certainly have to be sought with the new Polish, Yugoslav and Czech states against this disobedient Germany. The final outcome would certainly be German disintegration, as Ebert's regime was in no realistic position to combat the combined strength of the Allies. But the spectacle of the Allies failing in their task to save the peace would be immensely costly for all the reputations of those involved. In short, perhaps by the very fact that time was of the essence, this might work in favour of a solution, since nobody wanted to be responsible for failing at this stage in the game. While scanning over these very detailed minutes, it can sometimes be easy to become frustrated with Clemenceau. Every time some clause associated with Germany was raised, Clemenceau was bound to find issue with it. It wasn't restrictive enough, it gave Germany too much leeway, etc. Again though, we have to return to the central fact of the Paris Peace Conference and of the French perspective. This being, that of all the Allied powers assembled, it was the French that bore the most scars and had lost the most. It was also the French that stood to lose the most again if this treaty was not successfully hammered out and if Germany enjoyed a resurgence. Clemenceau could not afford to take the risk that the Germans had learned their lesson and wouldn't attack again. It was all very well for Wilson to express his view that he felt or believed the Germans would not renew any offensive, but Wilson would not have to pay a terrible price if he was wrong. France, on the other hand, would. Critics of the French Premier might add that the French undermined the League of Nations from the offset, and that if they had properly invested their attention and passion into it, it would have proved a stronger institution. Clemenceau, it is true, had never viewed the League of Nations with as much enthusiasm as either Woodrow Wilson or Lloyd George, and he did view it as secondary to the achievement of a good peace with Germany. I like the League, Clemenceau was once heard to remark, but I do not believe in it. Before the war had ended, Clemenceau had made no secret either 
of his distrust of German promises, or of his inability to trust the hypothetical League to protect France. In his maiden speech to the Chamber of Deputies in late 1917, after having just been confirmed as Premier, Clemenceau expressed the following views. I have been asked to express myself in regard to war aims and as to the idea of a League of Nations. I have replied in my declaration, we must conquer for the sake of justice. That is clear. We live in a time when words have great power, but they have not the power to set free. The word justice is as old as mankind. Do you imagine that the formula of a League of Nations is going to solve everything? There is a committee at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, even now, preparing a scheme for a League of Nations. Among its members are the most authoritative exponents of international law. I undertake that immediately their labours are finished. I will table the outcome of it in this chamber, if I am still Prime Minister, which does not seem likely. I am not unfavourable to arbitration. It was I who sent Monsieur Léon Bourgeois to The Hague in 1907, where a series of conventions were agreed upon, which Germany is now engaged in violating. Many believe that a miracle will bring about a League of Nations. I do not myself think that a League of Nations will be one of the results of this war. If tomorrow you propose to me that Germany should be included in a League of Nations, I should not consent. What guarantees do you offer me? Germany's signature? Go and ask the Belgians what they think of that. You never weary of saying that the first thing is for Germany herself to destroy German militarism, but she is far from destroying it. She still holds it fast. Germany indeed did hold fast for another year after this speech was made. But even on the conclusion of the armistice and the assembly of the world powers at Paris, Clemenceau was not imbued with a willingness to trust the Germans. And how could he be? From his perspective it also appeared that the Germans were continuing to menace the Poles in the east, a sure sign of their refusal to accept conditions laid down even in Woodrow Wilson's 14 points. Clemenceau was also clinging tightly to what one of his biographers discerned was his first of four major goals, that first goal being the Rhineland. The detachment of the Rhineland from Germany and its incorporation into either France or into an autonomous state appealed to the French high command and to Clemenceau because it would redress much of the strategic imbalance between Berlin and Paris. Historically, Clemenceau and the supporters of the Rhineland idea could argue, the Rhine region had been closer to France's magnetic pull than Prussia's and it was only with Bismarck's action in 1871 that this had fundamentally changed. French culture had long thrived in the university at Heidelberg, and French influence had pervaded the principalities that straddled the Rhine and controlled its crossings. Clemenceau was far more interested in detaching the Rhineland than he was in helping Wilson craft his league, especially since Wilson himself did not seem to know precise details like what self-determination meant or even the structure of its league in its earliest form. If not for the contributions from statesmen like Jan Smuts, in fact, there would never even have been a league mould to work with. Fast-forwarding somewhat, on the 25th of February, André Tardieu, one of the French delegates, echoed this position in a memorandum which summed up much of what Clemenceau and Foch had previously argued. Clemenceau's biographer recorded that Tardieu's note began by pointing out that the containment of Germany was not merely a French interest but of concern to all the Allies, and argued that only military control of the Rhineland could provide security. Neither disarmament nor the League of Nations could be relied on, for disarmament could not be ensured, and France required, not the assurance of eventual victory in a new war, 
but a guarantee that never again would she have to face a German invasion. Only the separation of the Rhineland from Germany could give that guarantee. Clemenceau's anxiety over Germany's lacklustre efforts to adhere to the armistice terms, and his own lack of enthusiasm for the League, can all be explained not only by past experiences, but also by rival goals at the Paris Peace Conference. You might recall that I mentioned the Rhineland was only the first of four major goals which Clemenceau had in mind. The other three were the industrial Tsarland, the eastern border of Germany, and the issue of reparations which Germany would have to pay. In each of these three areas, Clemenceau's debating became increasingly animated, particularly as the Allies began to close ranks against him and take the opposing view. At times his temper rose to new heights, validating in the process the opinions of the British and Americans, who came to see him as a bitter and delusional old man with impossible demands. Yet, they were only impossible because they contradicted Wilson's vague vision, and the British only went along with the Americans because American support was felt to be more useful than that of the French. This turn in Lloyd George's behaviour occasioned a rant on Clemenceau's part, just as he and Raymond Poincaré were about to meet the returning Wilson off the train on the 14th of March, following Wilson's return to France after his trip home to the United States. Poincaré recorded Clemenceau's mood at that time, and it makes for pretty interesting reading, so let's have a listen. Poincaré said, Today, Clemenceau is angry with the English, and especially with Lloyd George. I won't budge, he said. I will act like a hedgehog, and wait until they come to talk to me. I will yield nothing. We will see if they can manage without me. Lloyd George is a trickster. I don't like being double-crossed. Lloyd George has deceived me. He made me the finest promises, and now he breaks them. Fortunately, I think that at the moment we can count on American support. What is the worst of all is that the day before yesterday, Lloyd George said to me, well, now that we are going to disarm Germany, you no longer need the Rhine. And now Poincaré reverts back to the first person. I said to Clemenceau, Poincaré said, does disarmament then seem to him to give the same guarantees? Does he think that in the future we can be sure of preventing Germany from rebuilding her army? We are in complete agreement, Clemenceau replied. It is a point I will not yield. Germany dominated Clemenceau's Paris Peace Conference. Not mandates, not the League of Nations, not building a new world order, not self-determination, decolonization, Bolshevism or nationalism. At the centre of French security problems was the fact that Germany's population was twice the size of France, and that France had suffered a mortal wound in this war. She needed protection and guarantees, and everything which was discussed in the meantime detracted from this central mission. It is important to reiterate these points, I feel, rather than simply coast through the discussions which were run through. There's a danger that if we distance ourselves from Clemenceau's inner struggles and anxieties, we forget what drove him forward in the first place. We should also denote that his counterparts, even those that disagreed with him, afforded Clemenceau considerable respect and they did recognise where he was coming from, most of the time at least. Robert Lansing, remember the American Secretary of State, and his assessment of Clemenceau's personality and approach is recorded in his memoirs. And it is on the long side, typically enough for Lansing, but it's also worth quoting verbatim for the useful nuggets it unearths about the character of the French Premier. Secretary Lansing wrote the following on Clemenceau. As a mastery of the fine art of flattery, none could equal the French Premier. 
It was interesting to see how accurately he estimated the personal peculiarities of his colleagues and how tactfully he regulated his intercourse accordingly. With President Wilson he was, at least in the Council of Ten, politely deferential but never subservient. With Mr Lloyd George he showed his wit and sometimes his sarcasm. With the Italians he was cynical and caustic and not infrequently vehement, and with the Japanese indifferent or patiently tolerant. He had read with remarkable keenness the temperament and characteristics of each and seemed to understand the best way to deal with each one. The personality of Monsieur Clemenceau was distinctly attractive. His genial friendliness, his mental alertness and his sparkling wit made him always an agreeable companion and an interesting conversationalist. It is true that his wit was sometimes biting and cruel. He did not check his fondness for uttering clever sayings because they conveyed unpleasant truths or wounded the sensibilities of those at whom they were directed. But he was always careful to avoid offending one whose power he recognised or whose favour he sought. President Wilson, for example, was never in my presence a target of his sarcastic remarks, while his own officials and military advisers, even Marshal Ferdinand Foch, were often the subjects of jests and rebukes which, delivered before the council, caused them exceeding mortification and invited, in some cases, angry retorts. He was at times so harsh and sarcastic in his language that his listeners felt incensed that he took an occasion when they were present to humiliate his subordinates. Yet in spite of these exhibitions of temper, embarrassing as they were, one could not but admire the sturdy old veteran whose political life had been one of continual tumult and strife. No public man in France had had so stormy a career as he. He had not won his high place by making friends with politicians, he had won it by trampling down his enemies. He did not owe his success to a political party or to a faction, he owed it to a compelling recognition of his personal strength and ability. He simply revelled in the struggles in which he was constantly engaged to maintain his position. He never hesitated to pick up a gauge of battle, and he entered the conflict with all the vigour of youth and all the sagacity of age. Whatever may be thought of Monsieur Clemenceau's policies and methods, it is impossible to deny tribute to his indomitable will and his unwavering optimism, as he stood alone and defiant during many of the crises which he as Premier was called upon to face. Even those who disliked him intensely could not refuse him unwilling praise for his devotion and service to France, while the enthusiastic shouts of Clemenceau, Clemenceau, whenever he appeared in public, testified to a popularity which silenced his enemies and made his premiership secure. With only three precious days remaining to hammer out the details of the Covenant of the League of Nations and to agree on the methods for compelling German obedience to the newly negotiated armistice terms, the Allied leaders were certainly placing a great deal of pressure upon their already strained shoulders. This, as it would later transpire, was something of a watershed moment in the timeline of the Paris Peace Conference. We can consider it the first phase, handily bookended by the exit of Woodrow Wilson following his presentation of the League of Nations Covenant on the 14th of February. There was much to be done in these final days before Wilson's exit, but even before he had left, there was a sense in Paris that the mood had changed from before. Where once it had been so welcoming of Wilson, so enthusiastic about his League vision, opinions seemed to be hardening in the French press and among the delegations. Quarrels were not easy to solve. Time had been too easily wasted. Solutions had not been quickly arrived at. The world was still watching, and only a few days remained for the Allied leaders to deliver their promises or crash out with violent drama and disappointment. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.